From the outset of the gospel narrative, Matthew sets forth that Jesus is Messiah, the King. He is the Messiah because He is the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. And now, as Matthew closes his narrative, he continues developing the theme of Jesus' Messiahship around the events of His Passion. And as the angel revealed to Joseph, Jesus will save His people from their sins. Now previously, Matthew recorded nine events that corroborated Jesus' Messiahship back in Matthew 26. Those nine events are critical because they demonstrate to us that the Messiah is God and man. As God, Jesus divinely orchestrated those nine events to ensure that He died on the Passover as the Passover lamb for humanity's sin. My sin, your sin. Those nine events also demonstrated Jesus' need for fellowship, for sustenance, for emotional support. All which are basic human needs. Also, the physical abuse He absorbed confirms that, he, that the Messiah was more than a spirit. He was flesh and bone. And so with the Messiah's identity corroborated, Matthew now records for us the Messianic condemnation in Matthew 27, 1-32. The Messianic condemnation, Matthew 27, 1-32. Jesus the Messiah will be condemned by the Sanhedrin, by the statesmen, and by the soldiers. And amid the messianic condemnations, Judas and the Sanhedrin will also be condemned by their shame. These condemnations are the rising action that leads to the climax of the Messiah's cessation, His death on the cross. Now the first messianic condemnation comes from the Sanhedrin in Matthew 27, 1 and 2. He's condemned by the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 and 2 of Matthew 27. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate the governor. Now following his nighttime arrest, Jesus was immediately taken, as you recall, to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. And there he was tried and found guilty of blasphemy by members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court. Matthew notes here that when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred against Jesus. Now again, all the chief priests and elders refers to the Sanhedrin. They're having another meeting when morning came. Now the term morning here, prolia'ah, refers to the early morning. Shortly after dawn or after 6 a.m. So they've tried him through the night. Now it's 6 a.m. and they're having another trial. Now the importance of this time step has to be underscored here. Matthew wants us to know why this is happening. At 6 a.m. the high priest would offer the morning sacrifices. According to Sanhedrin 1-2 of the Talmud... The Sanhedrin would remain in session from the time of the daily whole offering of the morning until the time of the daily whole offering at evening. 
In other words, what Matthew acknowledges in that statement, when morning came, is that the judgment of Jesus by the Sanhedrin at night was illegal. They could only pass judgments between the morning and evening sacrifices. And so the Sanhedrin has to meet again in the morning after the sacrifices to render judgment against Jesus officially. But note that even their morning trial was illegal. Sanhedrin for one says, Therefore they do not judge capital cases on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a festival. When was Jesus arrested? Nisan 14, Passover. What's the next day? Nisan 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he's illegally being tried on Passover, which is the evening or the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the Sanhedrin are not interested in justice. The only thing they're interested in is optics and perception. They know the people will not stand for a nighttime trial. But they know that they can wiggle around the legitimacy of holding a trial on the eve of a feast day. And so the Sanhedrin votes to put Jesus to death. Again, the religious leaders see nothing wrong with running fast and loose with the law as long as it's convenient for them. For example, in Matthew 26, the Sanhedrin used false witnesses to accuse Jesus. And furthermore, they condemn Jesus to death for the sin of blasphemy on the same day they find him guilty. Now you say, well, what's the problem with that? They found him guilty, they gave him the death sentence. Again, let's go back to their own rules. Sanhedrin 5.5 says, if they find him innocent, send him away. If not, if they find him guilty, they must postpone judging him till the next day. They judged him, they tried him, and now they condemn him all in the same day. Again, rules only apply when it's convenient. And these so-called religious leaders not only ignored their laws, they ignored God's laws in condemning the Messiah to death. Now, though blasphemy carried a death penalty under God's law, the Sanhedrin could not execute Jesus. And John 18.31 tells us that they said to Pilate, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And so, as Matthew tells us here, they had to transfer Jesus to Pilate, the governor of Judea, for judgment. Now, let's get a little background here about Pilate. Following the, de the deposition of Herod Archelaus in AD 6, several governors had been appointed by Rome to oversee the province of Judea. Pilate became governor in A.D. 25 and remained governor until A.D. 36. The Jews immensely disliked Pilate for his wickedness and his despotism. According to Josephus, on one occasion, the Jews held a protest. And they protested a public works project because Pilate stole monies from the temple to fund the public work project. And so Pilate ordered armed soldiers to disguise themselves and infiltrate the crowd. Upon his orders, the soldiers brutally murdered all the protesters. The fact that these religious leaders were willing to team up 
with a murderous despot to rid themselves of Jesus underscores their wickedness and depravity. Now the second messianic condemnation is of Judas and the Sanhedrin. In Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. Matthew 27, 3 to 10. Now before going and continuing on with Pilate's condemnation, we'll see that later, but Matthew includes this exchange between Judas and the Sanhedrin. And we're going to see here in the text that both of these individuals are condemned by their own shame. Now Judas is condemned by his shame in Matthew 27, 3 to 5. Matthew 27, 3 to 5. The text reads, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elder, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. Now notice the word then, tota. It's a temporal adverb. It tells us that the following events, the events in verses 3 to 5, occur immediately after the events of 1 and 2. The Sanhedrin just condemned Jesus and then this happens shortly after 6 a.m. on Passover morning, Nisan 14. Matthew reveals that when Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned, he felt remorse. Now that verb saw, horeo, means that Judas perceived with his own eyes. In other words, Judas was present when Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin. He was there throughout the trial. He was there for their decision. See, Judas didn't betray Jesus and then go on his merry way. He went to the high priest's house. He wanted to see firsthand what was going to become of Jesus. Now why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Was it solely for the money? Or was there another motive? You know, we know that many of the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who was a military leader who would overthrow the Roman government. And it became very apparent to Judas that Jesus was not that kind of Messiah. And so Judas became disillusioned and angry. And I believe that Jesus' talk of death and his rebuke of the disciples pushed Judas over the edge. And what is important to note is that Judas's anger is completely unjust. Tolerating unjust anger, friends, leads to bitterness and hate, which in turn open the door for Satan to manipulate Judas. And that's a warning for us. We need to make sure that none of us are harboring unjust anger because of what it leads to. It will lead to bitterness. It will lead to hate. And it will make you a tool for Satan. So upon hearing the verdict, Judas feels remorse. Now the verb felt remorse, metamelomai, means that he experienced shame. Seeing Jesus condemned results in him being condemned by his shame. However, that doesn't mean he repented. If Judas had repented, at this point Matthew would have used the verb metaneo. Metaneo. So we have to ask, is there anything in the text 
to imply that he repented of his sin. Sadly, no. Immediately after feeling shame, Judas returns the 30 pieces of silver to the religious leaders. Next, he condemns his actions. He acknowledges, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now you think that if we stopped here, we'd say, hey, wait a minute. This sounds like he's going to repent of his sin. He experienced shame. He acknowledged his sin. But what comes next reveals a considerable gap between shame and genuine repentance. Now certainly, shame can lead to repentance. However, just feeling bad about something, even acknowledging that something is sin, is not repentance. Repentance does feel shame over sin, but repentance results in corrective action. The corrective action involves forsaking sin and turning to God. Forsaking sin and turning to God. At no point does Judas turn from his sin to God. Judas merely wanted the religious leaders to absolve him of his guilt. And what is the response of the leaders? They said, what is this to us? See to that yourself. In other words, that's your problem, not ours. Go deal with your own shame. Then he throws the money into the temple. Again, this doesn't indicate a turn from sin, as his actions that follow will show. Experience shame over his part in Jesus' condemnation and anger at the religious leaders for not absolving him of his sin. What does Judas do? He went away and hanged himself. Instead of forsaking his sin, instead of turning to God, he chooses to end his life. You see, he was remorseful, he was shameful, but he was not repentant. Instead of forsaking sin and turning to God for deliverance, he makes an impulsive decision to escape the stress of a difficult situation. Now, I want to take a moment here, if I may, and speak to the issue of suicide. Suicide is the intentional taking of one's life. And at that definition, it is a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But several questions must be asked and answered on the topic. First, is suicide a mortal sin? Two, are there medical reasons why someone may commit suicide? And three, is suicide ever morally excusable before a holy God? Now, while suicide does violate God's law, nowhere in Scripture is it presented as a mortal sin. That is, an unforgivable sin. Friends, if someone is genuinely saved and then commits suicide... In the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, they are absent from the body and a home with the Lord. No different than if you just lied and then died. <laughs> okay? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. They were genuinely saved. And before passing judgment on those who have committed suicide, I think there are several factors that have to be considered that may have resulted in the suicide. Medically speaking, there are chemical imbalances that can result in suicide. An individual who suffers from a chemical imbalance from a legitimate mental or physical disorder would not be morally accountable to God for committing a suicide. Okay? They did not act in the right frame of mind. There was something medically wrong. Now, if a suicide was caused by substance abuse, a personal choice on the part of the individual, that would be a different situation. That's a situation where suicide would put the person accountable before God. 
But a person's not held accountable for a holy God for something medically wrong in their life that led to the suicide. Furthermore, I'll take it a step further, there are situations where suicide, the personal taking of one's life, would be morally acceptable to God. Yes, there are occasions when suicide would be morally acceptable to God. Consider a situation of a pregnant mother who is told that she has to choose between her life and the life of her child. If she chooses her life, she's guilty of murder of that child. If she chooses the child's life, she would be guilty of suicide. But because her freedom of choice is removed, that really is no choice, okay? Her suicide, if that's the route she chose, would be viewed as morally acceptable before a holy God. He would not censure her. He would not hold her accountable because she had no freedom of choice. She was damned in either direction. Let's consider if a plane crashed or some other horrible disaster and a passerby attempts to rescue as many people as possible. And in attempting to rescue these people, the individual dies. Now, technically, they committed suicide. You say, well, how do they commit suicide? Because no one is morally obligated to rescue someone else's life if in, the, if in trying to save them, they endanger their own life. That's going, what's, what's called going above and beyond the call of duty. And so in the transmission of saving others, he loses his life. While technically it's suicide, his death would be morally acceptable before a holy God. We could say much more on this topic. We won't for the sake of time. But I want to be clear here. Judas did not suffer from a chemical imbalance. Judas's freedom of choice was not removed. And furthermore, Judas did not go beyond the call of duty. Judas had a problem called sin. He was greedy and a thief. And his suicide was an impulsive decision to escape the stress of a difficult situation of his own making. Verses 6 to 10. Judas is not the only one condemned by his shame. The Sanhedrin were also condemned by their shame in verses 6 through 10. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. So they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So Judas throws the money in the temple, and the next thing we see the Sanhedrin takes the silver, takes the money, and says, it's not lawful for us to put this into the treasury because it's the price of blood. Suddenly, these religious leaders develop a conscience, albeit a twisted one at that. They are concerned, what are we going to do with this money because it's blood money? Money that's been spent to murder an innocent person. Listen, if you can't see the lunacy of that statement, you have to be as blind as them. They were the ones who spent the money. They were the ones who sentenced to death an innocent man purchased with their money. And it's incredulous that the act that pricks their conscience, the act that causes them shame, is a man-made law forbidding the practice of placing blood money in the temple treasury. I've got a question. I've got two. Number one, 
Where was their conscience when they broke their laws about proper court proceedings? My second question is, where was their conscience when they broke God's law prohibiting bearing false witness? See, there's the problem with the unregenerate folks. Their conscience is twisted by sin. See, religion does not produce a godly conscience. A godly conscience is only produced by genuine repentance of sin and faith in God. And these religious leaders lack both. In turn, they decide to put on an act of religious piety to cover their shame. They took the money, they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Now, according to their law, not God's, strangers or Gentiles could not be buried in the land of Israel. They couldn't own land, rather, in the land of Israel. And so if a Gentile died in the land of Israel, they had to be buried in a publicly owned cemetery. Now, friends, how often have you tried to cover up your sin? How often have you tried to cover up some shame in your life by doing a good deed or performing some religious deed? I got news. All the good deeds in that you do are not going to remove your shame over your sin. The only means of removing sin and shame is through repentance before a holy God. As Psalm 32 ones that says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Friend, if you've got shame over sin, listen, I can't absolve you, but God can. Go to him, confess, forsake, repent of that sin. Now Matthew goes on to say that the field has been called the field of blood to this day. That means at the time of the writing of his, of his gospel, the people were still calling it the field of blood. Now Matthew wrote his, this gospel in A.D. 62. That means 30 years later, this field, Potter's Field, is still called a field of blood. That tells us two things. Number one, it confirms that Matthew's account is accurate. It's a trusted historical document, okay? See, if Matthew made up this story, then the original readers who were Jewish would have immediately saw, wait a minute, this is inaccurate. They would have rejected the gospel, and, and it, would not have, it would not be around today. Second, it confirms the truth about the source of the purchase money was well known. You see, 30 years later, people were calling it the field of blood, confirming that at some point, the word on the street was that the Sanhedrin paid Judas to betray Jesus, an innocent man, who was then falsely condemned to death. The word got out. And then Matthew verifies these events occurred in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And he quotes the Old Testament to show again how many prophecies about the Messiah are, are fulfilled in detail. Now, he attributes this prophecy to Jeremiah the prophet. We had a problem. Say it's not so. Yes, we have a problem. Because then he quotes Zechariah 11, 12 to 13. They took the 30 pieces of silver, etc., etc. Now I got news, good news. There is not a mistake or a contradiction here in the scripture. How is it then that he could quote Zechariah and attribute it to Jeremiah? Real simple. The book of Jeremiah is the longest Old Testament prophetical book. Now, right away, somebody's going to try to call me out and say, Wait a minute, Pastor. Isaiah is the longest book. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Yes, it does. But it's not the longest Old Testament book. If we look at the Hebrew text, the book of Jeremiah is composed of 33,002 words. Isaiah only is 25,608 words. 
Jeremiah, from a Hebrew perspective, is the longest prophetic writing. And so when the rabbis would gather the scrolls, they would order them in, 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 in length. And so when they would refer to a prophetical writing, they would place them under the largest scroll. So any prophetical writing could ultimately be attributed to the largest scroll in the group, which would be what? Jeremiah. So all Matthew simply does here is follow rabbinic convention. Now verses 11 to 26. The third messianic condemnation comes from a statesman in verses 11 to 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Pilate then says to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And again, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah. For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Messiah, called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Remember, shortly after 6 a.m., Jesus was charged by the Sanhedrin. And they now deliver him to Pilate. It's probably about 6.30 in the morning. And Pilate begins the trial by asking, Are you the king of the Jews? Now that's the messianic title, king of the Jews. And by the way, the first time Matthew used that was the Gentile wise men saying, where is he born king of the Jews? Matthew opens and closes his gospel record emphasizing Jesus' messiahship. Now Pilate's question reveals some deception on the part of the religious leaders. Remember, they had charged him with blasphemy for being the Messiah, the Son of God. But a claim of messiahship is not going to convince the Romans to put him to death. And so the Sanhedrin twists the truth. See, in the Jewish mind, well, Messiah is going to be king. So they claimed that Jesus pronounced himself to be king and was therefore plotting against Rome. In Luke 23, 2, the religious leaders accused him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, is Messiah, a king. Now here they clearly break the ninth commandment and bear false witness. Jesus replies to Pilate, it is as you say. In the Greek, it's two words. Suleges, which we can translate, that's your words, or 
Your words, not mine. Now immediately, we have to ask, wait a minute, isn't he really the king? Yes. Well, why didn't he just give a straightforward yes? Why does he seem to skirt the issue? Listen, it's called divine wisdom, folks. See, if Jesus gives a straightforward yes, he would have affirmed the accusation that he was striving to overthrow Rome and establish his own kingdom. And if he answers no, then he would have denied the truth that he was indeed the king. And so he walks a fine line. Yes, he's the king of the Jews, but not in the manner that he was being accused. And so the accusations continue, and yet he does not answer. Pilate says, don't you hear all the things they're testifying against you? And again, he doesn't answer in a single charge. And Pilate is amazed by this. Because typically, an accused person will defend themselves, but not Jesus. Jesus remains silent in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. 1 and 2, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Now Pilate is not convinced by the religious leaders. Matthew, at verse 18, Matthew says that he knew that because of envy they handed Jesus over to him. He knew they were jealous of Jesus because they were fearful of losing their influence and authority to him. And now he finds himself in an untenable position. If, if, he, if Pilate sets Jesus free, the Sanhedrin are going to incite a riot. And if the Jews riot it, Caesar is going to remove Pilate from office. But he discovers a loophole. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, Passover celebrates freedom. And so according to the Talmud in, in Pesachim 8.6, the Jews had a custom of offering a sacrifice for a prisoner whom they released from prison at Passover. And Roman policy was, you respect the local religious practice. And so Pilate seizes upon the practice as a loophole to deal with the crisis. There's a notorious prisoner called Barabbas that's imprisoned. Now the name Barabbas means son of the father. And interestingly, there is significant manuscript evidence that reveals his full name was Jesus Barabbas. And Pilate decides to offer the people a choice. Who do you want released? Now, before we go a little further, I do want to clarify something here. The physical location of this trial is in the courtyard of the Antonio Fortress. It's outside in a place called the Pavement of Justice, of Judgment. And archaeology has revealed that there's only about 300 people that could fit in this courtyard. Okay? And so the crowd could not be any bigger than 300. And most likely, because it's early in the morning, it's around 6.30 in the morning, it was just the religious leaders and their supporters. Pilate says, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus called Messiah? Notice the parallelism. Do you want Jesus, Son of the Father, or do you want Jesus, the Messiah? Which do you want? And it's at this point Pilate's wife says, whoa, 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 this man's a righteous man. I've suffered greatly in a dream because of him. You see, the Greeks and the Romans were convinced that God spoke to them in dreams. Pilate should have listened to his wife. Her declaration of Jesus' innocence only serves, though, to heighten Pilate's guilt. Well, the chief priests and the elders persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. The crowd demands Barabbas be released. Well, what should I do with Christ then? 
And they unanimously respond, Crucify Him! Put Him to death on the stake! And Pilate asks, Why? What evil has He done? They don't even answer. They just crucify Him! Crucify Him! And Matthew says here that Pilate notes his plan was accomplishing nothing but rather that a riot was starting. Now, isn't it ironic? The plan he concocted to avoid a riot was resulting in one. And so self-serving Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourself. It's, isn't it, again, another irony here, folks, that the same manner in which the religious leaders rebuffed Judas, now he rebuffs them. Now, don't think for a moment that Pilate's innocent. Don't think for a moment, because he chose of his own volition. And he's completely culpable for his choice. He could have commanded Jesus' release if he wanted. But instead, he chose a game of political one-upmanship. And as Acts 4.27 tells us, that it was Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel who were guilty of condemning the Messiah. Now notice the retort of the religious leaders. His blood on and be on us and on our children. Got to take a moment to explain that. Because this statement has been used by the church to support anti-Semitic ideas. There have been supposed Christian leaders who have used this verse down through the centuries to teach that the Jews condemned Jesus and brought a curse upon themselves. First of all, let's be clear that the phrase on our children does not refer or imply all Jewish people down through the centuries. It is a Hebraic formula used to demonstrate corporate solidarity of protest or innocence. They were essentially guaranteeing their commitment to Jesus' death on their child's life. It was a poor oath and one that should not have been made. However, culturally, it was not a, a curse placed upon them or their children. We also must underscore that only a small group of Jews, 300 or less, condemned Jesus. A group of religious leaders and their supporters. They certainly were not the representatives of the entire Jewish world. Just a few days before, a bunch of Galilean Jews uh, celebrated Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. Grecian Jews came and inquired of him. So it's a denial of scripture to claim that all Jews rejected Jesus. Wash that out of your mouth. And furthermore, that this small group of Jewish people made an oath does not imply that everybody was in agreement with them. The oath of a few, the sin of a few, should not condemn the many who come after them. This idea that future generations should be held responsible for the sins of their forefathers is not biblical. Listen, friends, God holds individuals responsible for their action, not their children or their subsequent generations for some ancestral sin. In Ezekiel 18.20, Yahweh declares, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, the wickedness of the wicked upon himself. And furthermore, Ezekiel goes on to say that if a wicked man turns from his sin and, and commits himself to serve all the statutes and practice justice and righteousness, he will live and not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. And so Pilate releases Barabbas and scourges Jesus. In other words, he had Jesus whipped with a, with a device called a flagellum. A flagellum would have multiple leather strips laced with metal and bone. According to Josephus, the victim would be beaten so hard that his bones would be laid bare. See, Pilate thought Jesus was innocent 
of the charges. But nonetheless, still commanded him to be scourged. Pilate's command to scourge Jesus removes any notion that the Jewish people acted exclusively or that they're culpable exclusively of Jesus' death. But it's also important that he be condemned by Jews and Gentiles because he paid the penalty of sin for Jews and Gentiles. And finally, we come to the fourth messianic condemnation in verses 27 to 32. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium gathered the whole Roman cohort around them. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garment back on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed in the service to bear his cross. The fourth messianic condemnation comes from the soldiers. Notice that they took him to the praetorium. They took him to the governor's residence where the soldiers' barracks were located. And there was a whole Roman cohort. There were 600 soldiers gathered around Jesus. Now was their time to condemn him. And their condemnation was twofold. First they condemned him by humiliating him and then they condemned him by beating him. Notice they stripped him naked, put a scarlet robe on him, twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, placed a reed in his right hand, knelt down and called him king, mockingly. By the way, as an aside, the crown of thorns is important because Messiah come to reverse the curse of sin. Romans 8.21 says the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Remember that when Adam sinned, God also cursed the ground, saying that thorns and thistles would grow from it. And just as Jesus shed blood, removes the curse of sin from us, so the blood-stained thorns testify that He will also remove the curse of sin from the ground. Their condemnation was not only one of humility, but of brutality. They spat on Him, beat Him in the head, and by the time they were finished, He was so mutilated and disfigured that He was unrecognizable. As Isaiah 52.14 tells us, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And then they finally took the scarlet robe off him, put his own garments back on, and take him to be crucified. It was as if nothing was out of the ordinary. It was just another day on the job. And so as they lead him to be crucified, he's so weak, he could not bear his own cross. Remember, the last time he slept was Monday night. It's now Wednesday morning. He's endured hours of abuse. And so they take a man of Cyrene. Cyrene's located in North Africa. A man named Simon. He was a Jewish proselyte in Jerusalem celebrating Passover. He probably had no doubt that morning that he would experience a life-changing event. And not only is he mentioned in three gospel records, but in Matthew 15, 21, his sons are also named. And I believe that that statement implies that Simon and his children were known to Mark's readers, which suggests that they became believers themselves after the events that morning. Friends, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 to 34, or 24, Peter takes us back to Isaiah 53 to reveal the messianic condemnation. And he outlines several areas in which we are to follow his example. 
Here's some lessons for us to learn in the Messiah's condemnation. As Peter says, you've been called for this purpose because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You see, the Messianic condemnation, when we look at that, we see several things. Number one, we see that the Messiah suffered condemnation, but not for any sin he committed. As Peter says, he committed no sins. Jesus lived a sinless life. My friends, you and I are going to endure suffering, but it should not be because of sin in our life. Look at yourself. Listen, if you experience suffering, it, make sure it's not because of sin. Make sure you can't be condemned because of sin. The Messiah suffered condemnation also because he was blameless. He maintained his blamelessness. Again, Isaiah, Peter quotes Isaiah 53, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I know we're not sinless, but we ought to be blameless. Are you striving to be blameless? You know, the Messiah also suffered condemnation, but did not resort to slander. Peter says, being reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, Peter was an eyewitness to the condemnation, wasn't he? He saw what Jesus endured from the Sanhedrin. He saw what he endured from the statesmen. He saw what he endured by the soldiers. And for all the condemnation, Jesus remained silent. He could have struck down his enemies with a thought. But instead, he acts selflessly and surrenders to it. To the condemnation. Are we as selfless as Jesus? Are we willing to surrender our rights and not retaliate for the cause of Christ? The Messiah suffered condemnation, but did not retaliate. He suffered, yet he uttered no threats. Instead of seeking vengeance, he endured the suffering and prayed for his enemies to be forgiven. Now, folks, that's not just a function of divinity. Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, did the same thing. He endured condemnation, he endured suffering, and prayed for his enemies. And I ask you, believer, when you're being condemned, when you're suffering, what's your, what's your reaction? Do you threaten your enemy or do you pray for your enemy? We're supposed to be like Jesus. The Messiah suffered condemnation, but willingly submitted, knowing it was all God's will. Peter says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Friends, this condemnation of the Messiah was divinely ordained. And yet, he continually committed himself, trusted himself to the righteous judge, knowing that his father would vindicate him and raise him from the dead and restore him to glory. And my friends, I got a challenge for each of us. We must willingly submit to whatever God ordains for our life. Are you willing, are you able to entrust yourself to your Heavenly Father, whatever He ordains for your life? Knowing that He will correct every wrong and He'll take vengeance on those who do you evil. Folks, the Messianic condemnation by the Sanhedrin, by the statesmen, by the soldiers again verifies Jesus as Messiah and King. It also verifies that he came to die for both Jews and Gentiles. And finally, the Messianic condemnation sets forth an example for you and I, believer, to follow. Are we going to follow his example? Are we going to strive to be sinless? Are we going to maintain our balance? Are we going to refuse to resort to slander? Are we going to refuse to retaliate? Are we willing to place ourselves in God's hands and let Him take up our cause. May the Holy Spirit help each and every one of us to follow Jesus' example, to follow the Messiah's example, 
to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you through our high priest, the Messiah, Jesus, who even now as he's there in heaven before you at your right hand, even now bears the cross or bears the scars of our our redemption. And Father, we ask that through your Spirit you would equip and enable us to follow our Jesus' example. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to willingly submit ourselves to whatever you ordain for us. Father, forgive us for not following in your Son's footsteps. Forgive us of the things that have caused us shame of which we have not yet repented. Father, thank you. We give you the praise. We give you the glory for guarding us from the evil one. And to you, Father, we give all the glory and all the praise. Amen.